Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. And we're going to be continuing our coverage on the Eisner-Miller book conversation that they conducted in the uh, the early aughts. But first I want to invite you guys to like, follow, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell icon so that we can notify you when new videos are available and help mitigate that kayfabe effect, which is whenever we talk about a book, uh, it often uh, is unavailable on any of the popular book buying websites, Amazon, eBay. By the end of that uh, business day, the people who are subscribed to these videos get first dibs on uh, the stuff that we're, we're talking about and covering. And if you play these videos to the very end, that uh, lets YouTube know that these are popular videos that uh, comic book loving YouTube uh, people need to see. Helps us grow the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel, which is very important for us to continue providing you with these, uh, these daily vids. Uh, without further ado, what we've been doing with this Eisner Miller book, of which you can get to links in the description below this video to our previous parts. Uh, this conversation w is cut up into 30 different sections, and we cover five sections per video. And now we're starting off spicy, Jimmy, with a sequence called The, Ske the Schemer. Talking business, Ed. Yes, lots of business talk. That, that's, that's the scheme that, that, uh, that in, in the title, Schemer. And there's that popular thing in, in comics, and, and I guess in almost any kind of creative and competitive field where if you get an opportunity and somebody's coming to you providing some work, just say yes. You know, say, say, say yes and, if, and figure out how to make it work after you get your foot in the door. That's one of the great schemes in uh, comics. I think that might be in any 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 business. Yeah. <laughs> any job that comes up. Take the orders. You say yes and then figure out how to fill it. Yeah. Um, you know, one note on that first page is Miller talks about uh, he loves doing comic books, but it's ultimately lonely work, and it does reach the point where you've been alone with it too long. I think that's uh, telling, and I think we might see that come up a couple more times, but business is their offset right. to uh, you know, working with other people, being a little more social in this somewhat isolated uh, practice. It's uh, it's one of those things, too, that sep separates the, 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 the people who who are running a business and the kind of scab job job guys who just want to be told what to do who will bend over backwards to do the work for you but who don't have any particular single vision Eisner builds on that lonely part and he says you know if if nothing else you have no other contact with other people you become warped in many ways and I think that speaks to what you're describing like you can sort of be um manipulated more easily if you're if you're just completely alone all the time in your head right uh you know you need that you need some extra people in your life <laughs> talks about like doesn't ever have very much good to say about uh jack kirby like will eisner's always just talking about like, yeah you know he's he's a job guy like he and i we, we started at the same position and 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 you know i went my way like he he you know kept working for publishers and he he often talks about the like Wally Wood is a name that would come up as um, uh, somebody that had a relationship with Will Eisner, and uh, Wally Wood is like sad, upset, mad, angry that Jim Warren at one point said, "I'm going to publish some of your stuff," and then uh, walked that back and said, "No, I'm not going to." Wally Wood wanted to know if he could sue the guy. How I feel like I know about a half dozen dudes on the tip of my tongue <laughs> who would be that way, who like don't get what they want and are like, yeah, "Can I sue them?" Can I take them to court? And Eisner's just like, dude, <laughs> taking advantage of the situation, by the way. Uh, you know, like, uh, Wally Wood got, got cold dissed by Jim Warren, so his, so his, so his uh, inner feelings, a little bit wounded. Listen, Wally, Wallace, 
he doesn't have to pr- publish your book but guess what man you could draw a spirit comic for me your chops are okay <laughs> i kind of like your work a little bit your chops are okay want to draw some spirits yeah, and those are those outer space spirits. The last um, batch, man. With Jules Pfeiffer, talk about an all-star team. Those are uh, those are future cartoonist kayfabe uh, Got fodder them all. for Got sure. Them all. But it, it is it is uh, you know Wallace Wood has such a legacy in this business. Like yeah. like we've talked about him several times on the channel. Talked about his obituary, tragic ending. They they link some of that, you know. Like like I, I feel like this lack of control on the business side contributed to certain artistic limitations um maybe not on the page but in terms of being unhappy yeah cartoonist kayfabe is sponsored by the comic books ed piscor and i make if you want to support cartoonist kayfabe pick up our comics and books wherever you buy them red room starting with red room the anti-social network season one of ed's murder on the dark web for fun and profit Trigger warning, season two is now in stores everywhere. This is issue number one. Issue two also available. Issue three coming next month and uh, available wherever you buy comics except for banned in seven comic stores. Uh, Hopefully that number is not rising, but you never know. Well, you know what? The cool thing about it rising is that the bigger comic shops heard about that stuff, tripled their orders, man. (laughs) Nice. WYSIWYG, a history of computer hacking. X-Men Grand Design, the Grand Design that started them all, including Hulk Grand Design. Can't wait Three to see what... oversized volumes of this available. Can't wait to see what your cover looks like when you put yours together, Jimmy. And Hip Hop Family Tree, a history of hip hop available in four treasury-sized editions or two beautiful box sets. You can pick up my latest book wherever comics are sold, Hulk Grand Design Monster. This is in comic shops everywhere now with some beautiful variant covers, a retelling of the 60-year history of the Incredible Hulk, and coming in April, Hulk Grand Design Madness with uh, also some beautiful cover choices here by Ed McGinnis and Jeff Darrow, as well as my cover. Again, the 60-year history of the Hulk distilled down into two very dense uh, oversized issues. Plain Janes, the first young adult comic graphic novel here in America by Cecil Castellucci and me. And Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive, which just went out of print from Image Comics, Ed. If you guys at home see Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive on your comic shop shelves, pick it up because it is no longer available for order. But the original Street Angel hardcover, oversized, uh, these are kind of like director's cuts, almost like artist editions. I think they're the nicest books ever designed. These are all still available from the publisher. You can get them wherever books are bought and sold. And now back to our regular scheduled programming. It's like this this business that we've we've inherited uh you think about it man and and you know there's there's some really really great works that that from incredible creators that just just never manifest because they stayed on the hamster wheel they stayed in the work for higher space uh we take for granted people like uh you know like the will i mean the the frank millers of, of that generation who comics was one way when they get in and then opportunities begin to abound uh during their tenure they get to see it they're the people that take advantage of it you know here's eisner's words on wally wood's um demise he says that harlan ellison said that uh, wally wood was destroyed by the industry and eisner says wood destroyed himself destroyed by battering his head against his inability to deal with reality yes you know he didn't um he didn't look at the business and say, I need to go this direction. Instead, he kept going in the same direction that wasn't yielding the results he wanted. Will Eisner in this 
part of the conversation, maybe all five parts that we're going to talk about uh, today. Like he is the pragmatist. He is speaking from a position of like uh, opportunity, like taking advantage of opportunity. The the business guy. Uh, he doesn't have sympathy for people who sign a contract that explicitly state things are going to be this way, and then hearing you're bitching and complaining afterward. The same the same piece of conversation. Eisner goes from Neil Adams to Wally Wood to then the Joe Simon, Jack Kirby piece, where it's like Joe Simon had good practical outlook, Kirby didn't. Right. It's, it's, Jack, uh, was a, Jack was a worker, and he thought of himself as a worker. Yeah, it's it's an interesting perspective. You know, it helps that it's coming from a guy who's in this field. You know, if, if you don't know any of these people, and he knew all these guys, you know, like it's it's pretty insightful. And he says, like, you, you get, you get, you have to you have to take things like nobody's going to give you anything like the way this system works nobody's going to give you anything out of charity you have to work for it. you have to take it power's not given power is taken uh he talks about the various versions of unions and stuff that that came and just fell apart in two seconds because people would easily uh sort of undercut the, their their fellows one of the things i've gotten from these photos of will eisner man he was never young looking <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's true the, the opener of this chapter it, it, there's a note there that's like 1960 i swore it could have been like totally the, 2000 like, yeah from from uh, comic book confidential and by the way milk kniff looks like the morphine bela lugosi from the ed wilson from the edward movies <laughs> doesn't it <laughs> it does karloff sidekick that whole photo i love it I, I love seeing any of these like these pictures of these guys that you've seen a million of their drawings but how often do you actually see them erwin hasten yes. man teacher at the kubert school he also did that really weird graphic novel in his later years where he's just like he's this guy right here with this weird like kanji and shit on his shirt uh and talking about how like tall beautiful blonde ladies absolutely love him it was all about his love relationships and it's like total kayfabe bullshit <laughs> like this guy he had no swag and keeping that business talk rolling we get into the cartoon the comic strips with milton kniff which also like the syndicates were exploitative you know like like milton kniff biggest cartoonist of, of his era and he leaves the one syndicate yeah that's how steve canyon comes about that's how steve canyon comes about the syndicates own this stuff uh in, in a lot of ways we're, we're 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 lucky in certain aspects man like when we interviewed um peter chung one of the questions i had listen man you fucking created Tommy Pickles, Rugrats, like, you get a piece of it? He's like, nah, you get nothing. You get nothing. You create these, like, he created April O'Neil with the yellow jumpsuit, like the King Louie hair with the Jerry Curl <laughs> chick. That's from the comics. Like, he created the iconic, you see her at cosplay at every convention, red hair, yellow jumpsuit. He created that. Doesn't get a piece of anything. Yeah. Miller asks him, uh, Will Eisner, about the, the fact that, you know, at this point, like, you, you know, we're fucking with Marvel, you're not really doing stuff with DC, you you you, you tag along and, and mess with these uh, small press publishers. There's uh, Dennis Kitchen right there. Uh, one of the reasons I hung around the small publishers is because I could pick up the phone and call a guy who's making the decision. That is something that I'm very used to and uh, is important to me. Like, almost all the uh, comics that I've done on my own, I allow to be out I, I entertain offers and it's 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 super valuable to me that i could just hit up gary at a moment's notice and ask a question or something if if there's this like barrier or there's like some fake assistant kind of barrier between me and the publisher 
not interested, man. Not interested. I, I don't want to jump through hoops to, to like get, get a question answered. Uh, there's a lot of type A in the game, and I like to build a relationship with a publisher and see that they're aggressive in what they want to do and accomplish. If you put these like little minions in between me and them, I'm not excited. I am not excited to, to, to work with you. There's a, a friend of mine who's like uh, kind of a, he's a very successful businessman and he talks all the time about how it's relationships. Like yeah. all businesses is relationships and it's what you're describing. I often think too, like what are the advantages of being small or of being a one person doing everything? And I think there are a lot of advantages to that. It's interesting that Will Eisner goes that, chooses to go that route. He has a lot of self-awareness, man. Another piece that I highlighted right here, I'm important, but I don't make money for them. I give them prestige. He speaks like a lot of this highfalutin stuff, and and truthfully, he does, man. There there were those like comic, you know, comics and sequential art book. Uh, he's his teacher, like he has his own respect and gravitas in the medium. Uh, so if you publish him, there is some positive baggage that 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 comes along with that. Man, if one of your cartoonists wins an Eisner Award, that probably gets uh, plastered across the cover. So imagine having. Eisner, yeah, <laughs> the the actual man there. So, but, but he's fun. But he says, you know, like like my my shit doesn't sell that much. Yeah, they 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 go round and round on this topic about how you know he's constantly saying your books sell more copies than mine to uh, Frank and even a lot more copies. You know, it's 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 a small percentage of what he sells compared to Miller, but that's not the measure of his success. Eisner's that's a big that's a big conversation. Like like what is success? Even even uh, Miller at this point is is like you know that's not really like the measure of his success. Uh, I myself will take uh, a lot more money and sacrifice any of your Eisner awards <laughs> and stuff. So so thank you guys for supporting uh, the works of mine that you have been. A good one here is uh, one of the practical measures of Eisner's success is that a contract with God is still in print after 21 years. Oh, yeah. Love that. Yeah, so good, man. Uh, Miller goes, <laughs> I've had a couple of books that had anniversaries, and he feels like, okay, the kid made it to 10. He's going to be all right. Like, if you have something making money for you after 10 years, fan-freaking-tastic, man. Everything else that is, is gravy. Everything else is gravy, man. I, I call I call that the uh, that's the that's the Beastie Boys philosophy, man. You like you like you make your license to ill your first album that goes like double platinum or what or, or uh, goes diamond, you know, twenty million copies, and then uh, you can be an artist on everything else, man, because you have that initial piece that is just uh, make making all the loot. That was a philosophy with like a lot of my early like hip hop family tree. I knew that shit was going to sell. Come on now, and is selling. Thank you guys once again for for that kind of thing. It is interesting to hear these guys go back and forth on on what they consider successful in their work. Yeah, and there's a lot of audience reaction from both sides. You know, talk both both parties here talking about various audience reactions. This is this is, uh, and I do not like <laughs> nowadays for some reason. Like people like um, nowadays people use the word privilege as like a pejorative, but we are witness to a a privilege conversation that everybody would shoot for to be able to like when you're getting started the concern is to keep the roof over your head and pay your rent and pay your bills you figure that part out and you start to be able to sock some loot away make investments and stuff like that your idea of success can change you know you like your idea of uh, where you place your values once you take care of that you know hierarchy of needs you could start to think about other stuff and and, and where, where you place certain values man I think it's a useful exercise to think about it earlier in the process before you've achieved it. You know, I, I feel like Eisner, if you look at his career and you look at the moves that he was doing in, say, the 70s, 
it seems like he had ideas about these successes, uh, you know, before Contract with God's even an idea, or at least before it's a, a real book. And I feel like that must have influenced some of his decision-making and choices compared to a Kirby. There are those bits, man, in here where they get into the, like, love me daddy complex, where, where he's talking about early in his career, he's expressing, like, elements from his mother and father. Like, the mother mm -hmm. was the pragmatist who, you know, is... I guess maybe a little older, like during that depression and stuff, uh, the great depression and is like, you can't make money on this kind of thing. You need to like fucking, you need to go figure that part out. Um, in business, if you're the guy at the top of the pyramid, you get the bigger stake of everything. And then his father was the creative guy, the failed artist basically, who was like, yeah, boy, go, go ahead and do that kind of thing. I think about, uh, when we get into that part, my own folks, man. My mom draws, and she was kind of stultified by by her parents who worked in the steel mill, and were like, "We will not pay for any kind of school for you if if you're if art school is your idea. We ain't paying a dime of that, but we'll send you to college." And then my pops, when uh, the steel mills folded, like I have this box in the other room. It's my most cherished prized possession. It's it's two maybe three dozen movie scripts and TV scripts that he wrote after he got laid off, man. So he's the writer, my mom's the artist. This is this is uh, my example of how disciplined you are because I would have illustrated half of those scripts by now. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, had, I did illustrate uh, some of those things because because they're, to me, they are incredible pieces of outsider art. Like my dad is an outsider artist and he doesn't even know what that shit means. Right. Because I know him as who he is and I see the id that's in those scripts and stuff. I don't want to put his business out on the streets and shit, but uh, I see where his point of view, and he, he wouldn't even, if I brought it up to him, he wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Anyhow, digress. Talking about audiences, uh, that's another thing. And and this this is sort of the, the ping pong that has been going on the entire time where Eisner, like this conversation, if I had it with him, I would be frustrated because he's always positioning himself as the the man of like higher culture in the co in the conversation and always like I, it reads like little digs and 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 miller does defend himself but uh you know he's the literate cultured guy you're the you're the brash you know young kid he describes that he hopes that his comic like the way he's the audience he sees for his comics is that uh a comic shop owner will see a kid in there give the kid one of his comics to give to the folks and you know he'll 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 give the money back if uh, your your mom doesn't like it yeah it's it's pretty interesting uh miller says i'm playing more to the kind of people who generally head to the comic shops eisner i'm talking to a different audience uh super fascinating to me for two reasons one 1986 huge year for me huge year for comics that is when direct market or comic book shops surpass newsstand yeah. for comic shop dollars. Last year, the year before, bookstores surpassed comic shops. So we've seen another shift. And just recently, like I'm trying to figure out my next project and looking at options in terms of publishers. And uh, they just released the book scan numbers that, that um, Brian Hibbs posts about. This past year's numbers were larger than 2018 and 2019 combined. These are just book, basically book sales. And uh, you realize, like, A, there are two different audiences, 
And you know, you, this is part of the business. You got to be conscious of this stuff. And it's conversations I don't hear very often whenever we're hanging out with comic comic friends. But by the way, Miller and Eisner are having this conversation 20 years ago. Right. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you got to look elsewhere if you're if you're going to this is a hard business to make money in as we've said. You kind of have to do this part, you yeah. know, and, and some of it might feel like homework or whatever, but you know, the drawing's the fun part. Right. But you got to pay for that time at the drawing board somehow. And that's what some of these conversations illustrate. And I say, like, this information's out there. Yes. You know, we could all be digging into this. Yes, yes, yes. Like, if if, if the creators were just a tad less self-indulgent and had a little bit of administrative, first off, it would make your job and my job a little easier working with these publishers because these people have set precedent with these publishers and have been fucked over and have not gotten all the things that are possible to get. So it puts us in a position where we now have to ha put our dignity forward and actually ask questions. That This is a, something that comes up in the conversation. Like, like if you're, if you're um, a lot of creatives, they feel like they're being annoying, but it's like, you got to kind of bang the drum a little bit. You got to ask for things. You got to see what's possible. And you can't feel like you're inconveniencing somebody. You're in a business relationship. And you could do mutually good business, but do mutually good business. Don't act as an employee. These motherfuckers ain't paying your health insurance. Yeah, man. Ask a lot of questions. Annoy annoy these people with your questions because how else are you going to get those answers? Uh, a couple of things that I really liked in this conversation that I think about in my own work is Eisner says that the work he's done comes out of his own need to say something. Right, yeah, yeah. I struggle with this. You right. know, like, I usually need to find something to say to justify drawing. Yes. I, I want to draw some cool shit. Like, you know, like I like Dada. I love Dada. It says nothing. Right. I mean, it, it sort of says something because it says nothing. But at the same time, like, I'm not trying to persuade somebody. Yes. I'm not trying to make propaganda with my stuff. So I don't feel like I'm saying something most of the time and it's 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 sometimes I feel empty for that it's 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 interesting like thinking about your work in that context because I feel like like because I know you like the most you book you ever made is your notebook drawings like that's the most Jim Rugg on a page I've ever seen because of that because like you know like like you lean towards that that other I lean towards that other direction and stuff man like you out there in the cafe crowd like I don't know you. You don't know me. Maybe I don't want to put put all all of my my personal stuff uh, out there or or like reveal too many cards. Maybe I want to do escapist type type things. Eisner is like I have a story that needs to be told right. and uh, a story like worth telling. I have a million of those, but maybe I don't want to tell you. You know, maybe it's private. Maybe it's between me and like a handful of people that, that have to pass before I can t t tell yeah. the stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I have no problem with my parents for this. It's like I have nothing important to <laughs> worth saying. Get up your time. I'm still in that kid should be seen, not heard mode, sure, except yeah. for the part that I'm old. Um, they also, they also, uh, and Miller comes up with this a lot, is the uh, the role of their work. And Miller thinks about pop culture, yeah. you know, putting his work in that context, in that conversation, and sees uh, Eisner's as a lot more fine art and literary sensibility. And I, I love that we live in an age where all of that's on the table Absolutely. for comics because it wasn't in 1986. It was not. Yeah. Not, not here. Not in comic shops. The arrangement of uh, images throughout this book is really great because you get a kind of a sort of theme and then you get an Eisner example you get a Miller example of it's these incredible. different pieces and uh, that's something that we just glanced over throughout throughout all of our conversation but it is orchestrated pretty pretty beautifully 
Oh man, like this might be the best example of this page going from from de depression to Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> Gordon Gecko, man, one day this will all be yours. I wonder about that talk of current and past, if that really is based on Eisner's age or something else, you know, when he came up, different values, because there are certainly different generations. So I wonder if that's something that, you know, when Eisner was a kid and seeing stuff, if that's, if his work reflects the values of that time, or if it is like, hey man, you know, he, he's, he's got 30, 40 more years on this planet than Miller, his perspective's different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the subject matter is he, that he's that he's focusing on are, are these, like, super old-time things. But, like, Jimmy, I don't know about you, man. By the time I became a professional, my outside observational skills are have gone far away. Like, I'm spending so much time drawing that I still think people might wear Bosch jeans and shit like this, man. <laughs> like, I, like, I don't know what a sure. modern kid looks like in terms of fashion or any of that. I got to rely on, like my kid's sister and people like for, for that part. So it's like, they call them your formative years for a reason. Yeah, and that's right. the most ingrained stuff like in Eisner's head. So why not tell those stories, man? And as the years go by personally, like I have a yearning for, for simpler times of my own life. And I imagine that mm -hmm. all of my comics are going to be, aren't going to go much past like the nineties or anything like that. Like black hole, it exists in the seventies. That's, you imagine that Charles Burns spent a lot of time perfecting that ink line and he the 80s go by in a haze and, and the 90s go by in a haze so like when he chooses to do Black Hole it's from a certain right. period of time that, that he's most connected to because he's able to live the most life at that period. Well, you know, the other thing that, that this reading has made me think is I'm very eager to dive back into Eisner's body of work. Yeah. Because like how old is he when he does contract with God. Right. Is he 50? Is he in his late 40s? You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm rapidly approaching that age yeah. and it's like, I'm curious to engage with that work now. You know, I probably read that stuff when I was, I don't know, mid twenties or something, early twenties. I think it'll read different. You know, just hearing him talk about it sounds different. Um, this is a fun, a, a kind of a fun chapter. It's called New York and they're talking about cities and there's some romantic notions. There's some uh, observations made. One of the cool, one of the cool things is that Eisner, is from New York and Frank Miller is a hayseed from Montpelier and like romanticizes New York and comes there to live. So they talk about the two different perspectives. Here's another really good example of the yeah. curation Super of imagery cool. where you get an Eisner sequence inside the train. It almost reads like a comic. Like, mm -hmm. like you know, one totally. guy does a set of panels, the other guy does the other, man. There goes your Eisner A jam stuff. piece. It go, yeah, it gets back, dude, there's, there's that spirit jam issue you know mm -hmm. do you have that I, I don't know if i have that or not ah fuck okay p-box 3071 <laughs> mono pa 15120 send it to us we will uh do an episode on it and give you a shout out uh <laughs> how many of those do you think we'll get <laughs> hey man fuck it <laughs> uh jimmy um the conversations from several episodes ago where they were talking about the impressionism of uh the sort of um Pencil mileage, although all the windows drawn in the building, that rears its ugly head again uh, in, in the pages of, of this section where it's like that both of those guys are much less interested in drawing every window. You don't need it. Yes. Uh, let's break things down. This is from a comic called The Building, and of course you would need to draw the building in a comic called The Building. A story I really quite like, man. Uh, I, I, I have this one, so if you want to do that at some point, like, very happy to do it. I love this idea that Metropolis and Gotham, 
they're both New York. One is daytime, one is nighttime. Yeah, man. That's that's a kind of a cool notion. And I love this romanticism of of cities is almost, uh, you know, the, the, the lame way to say it is cities of character. But the real way, like, they get into some of the details of that romanticism, I feel that. Mm -hmm. This is where superheroes live. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's almost like superhero comics were propaganda for these cities. They felt like magical places. I grew up in a rural setting. You know, it was very magical uh, in a lot of ways. And I just saw them in books and in and, and media. I think Frank Miller is a, a little revealing here without without knowing, knowing it. Because he's talking about moving back to New York. And he's like, fuck these Dwayne Reeds, man. Like... Like, uh, there are hor ugly, horrible places. I had this mm -hmm. pharmacy that I would go to. And the part that I have highlighted here, you know, is this old couple that, that owned it. Had the part that I have highlighted, you don't really even need a doctor with these people yeah. to get the fucking whatever gimmick you want, man. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think you need a doctor now. <laughs> oh, this nice old couple. I'm so sad they're gone. Oh, man. Don't even need a doctor with these guys amazing <laughs> you know what they get into that's that i've never heard anybody talk about is uh the vertical quality of cities yeah and how that translates into comics and comic storytelling yeah it's great panels uh for examples and putting those two together but it's kind of a it's such a visual analysis yeah i thought that was really interesting and they compare it to stuff like you know a farm is horizontal and it makes sense i've just never heard somebody really kind of laying it out this way they talk about how like like the superhero needs that space you know because you have every kind of every kind of human exists in in the city you, you there's something happening behind every window but that makes me want to like let's do the great fucking superhero rural sort of like all the cool shit that could like bust out of the ground in the middle of kansas and things like that there let's fuck with that man there could be some interesting things to do yeah may, maybe cut this part yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and uh, you flip the page and, and you get uh, that Jacques Tardy, a uh, flat iron building, where they uh, talk about, like, the guy looks like he's packing in all kinds of detail, but it's cartooning. Yes. And they, they, they mentioned, like, the sort of deceptive nature where you, if you choose the right things to put in there, it feels more substantial in terms of line density or whatever. It's, a, it's really cool because the raindrops and the windows are the same mark. Yeah. They're just slightly arranged differently. Yeah. That is that is cartooning right there. I love Tardy's lettering. Yeah. There's a piece in here too where they say, um, Eisner says, I'm less interested in the amount of fun to be had. I'm interested in telling a story. And Miller says, they're not the same to you. Yeah. And he says, not really. I do a story, you know, I, I, I don't do a story because it's fun to do. That's again, this is going back to that theme of like, Am I doing comics wrong? <laughs> right, like, like this is that conversation. I was, I'm, I'm happy you brought that up because, because uh, I don't know about you, Jimmy. I like, I'll put my cards on the table. This stuff takes a long time to to make, and I have to be having a good time while doing it. Yes, no. Yes, I'll go one step further. You know how people talk about art as therapy. I learned early on, like uh, I can do something fun and, and ninja stories, jumping around on a skateboard and, and colorful. And guess what? At the end of the day feel pretty good about that yeah or you could do some nonfiction, uh joe sacco kind of stuff and man i don't know how i'd feel at the end of, of, of a day of that or at the end of a year or two of putting a book of that together and the research that goes into it and i don't know man i, I, was, I, I just i don't know that i would enjoy comics as much if that was the way i had to do them yeah i was thinking about that barry windsor smith monsters book and that's and, a good and, example and, and, and spending three decades on that. that seems like a tough thing to live in your head yeah because you live with this stuff right yeah you dream about it 
You do. You dream about it. It's crazy. Yeah, but the New York stuff, it's its a little thin on uh, the, the comic book creative stuff. You know, they're, they're, they're just speaking about the humanity of, of the city. Uh, Miller, see, this, this is like one of those great kind of contrasts between both of them, uh, where Miller uh, shares this anecdote where he's walking down the street, sees a little doll that clearly would belong to a little girl, picks it up, looks around for like a bassinet or, or a little stroller or something, doesn't find it and he just kind of sets it over on a stoop like it's a, like it's a little human or something or like the girl's going to come back for it and Eisner seizes on that like I would put that in the comic because then depending on how you dress the guy you know if he's a if you dress him up like a bum bum guy like that has a different connotation than if it's a you know Charles Foster Kane aristocrat looking looking character uh, doing it like you could you could play with that and it's a moment of humanity we did uh, we did ice haven recently and that's the stuff that that uh dan Klaus is so good for putting in like these little human touches but you absolutely get the sense from frank miller that he is not interested in that he does not want to like it feels like a french movie yes <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't i can't infer tone but it sounds like uh he stresses the word awful yes. uh, when he would say it. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you picked up on that. This is a fun part of a conversation. You know, for, for this book that does have a lot of craft talk, business talk, all that stuff, this is a really fun moment. And it makes me think of, uh, we looked at Will Eisner's sketchbook that's really like layouts for several of his stories. You know, he writes in drawing mode. And it feels like you can see how this kind of a story would inform one of his works. Yeah. It's pretty neat. It's, it's, it's an unusual illustration of the way these guys think. Yes. Breaking in. We, we mentioned a lot of the stuff uh, that's in this section a little bit earlier. Yeah, it's fun to hear Miller talk about the virtues of work for hire. You know, train me in a set of skills that would do... Uh, a lot of new people good. Yes. Um, you know, and that and that's that's really speed. It's really putting out a monthly book means you've got to do your twenty pages, uh, page a day. Figure you know, out a economy. Don't get to redraw stuff over and over. Don't get to sp spend months writing it. And uh, it it is interesting. You know, he, he he's come far with that skill set. Yeah, and and, and uh, Jimmy, you said it. You said it in relation uh, to to me as we, as we were coming up. Like whenever I went to work with like those those animation guys and was tasked with doing like 10 11 pages worth of stuff a day like you said you saw a jump in, in my work because it's hard for somebody to see themselves uh and i i think that like you know you you draw 20 pages a month even if it's quick you're going to figure out drawing things that just work better things are going to click more you're, you're you're doing it more people that worry about their style work that way yeah because that that that's your style yeah whatever you do under fire like that um, speaking of that animation stuff, I need to twist your arm to put a little bit of that under the camera and talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Some of that stuff I, I found fascinating, and I'm, I'm sure everybody else would too. Um, Eisner pulls out that Gil Kane used to say good comic book art is uh, artwork in service to the story. I live by that. Absolutely. That makes total sense to me. Absolutely. And and I live by that even though I, 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 I don't always practice what I preach when I start getting caught up in a drawing. Well, that's some of the fun. You know, like the the way and you want room for the stuff that isn't planned. The the way or the way around that uh, is often the other stuff I bring beyond the drawing, which would be like the gray tones, 
or color because I can I can recess certain things if I started to get having a little too much fun drawing. You gray that stuff out, let the main figures pop a little bit more. It doesn't hurt harm the the reading experience. I think of style this way too. Like like think about style and service to a story. And 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 it's not just the ink line quality, but I mean like you know how how extreme are you going with angles and things that you know yeah. compositionally like there's a lot of elements of style that i think really can service a story and can say a lot uh on a, not quite a subconscious level but can communicate a lot with style asner mentions the famous uh jules pfeiffer uh sil silhouette story that communicates something on a grand scale but is just using simple shapes fakery fakery <laughs> boom back to that schemer idea right totally I love this uh, Frank Miller quote that where he's speaking about you specifically. Uh, the other thing I'm seeing in comics right now is that someone will come along and do their time in the field, meaning the mainstream, having fun with Hulk or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> as part of an overall plan to get an audience and then look to where to take that audience. Let me keep reading. I highlighted this too, Ed. You're right. It does feel like this is Miller uh, reaching out to cartoonist Kayfabe. <laughs> they recognize that we're businessmen and say, I don't want a job. This is what I want to do. That businessman thing, like when I talk about like looking at what I'm doing next and, and figuring out a publisher that fits that, it is not accidental. You know, like I, I do look at the, I did the Hulk. Where do I go? Where do I want to try to bring some of that audience? You know, the, the where whole, can I meet that audience next? The whole point, the whole point of stepping into that realm with 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 Marvel and and to like start start that grand design shit off is because of the tried and true formula that has been created by uh so, by so many other cre other creative teams. Man, you do your cup of coffee at the big two, you gain your an audience there. Take take the adventurous. Uh, batch of that audience with you to your next thing. You got your Wednesday Warriors who fucked with your thing because they like the Hulk. They ain't coming. You know what I mean? They like the Hulk. They like their Marvel nonsense. Uh, but they're the Jim Rug converts, man. The Hulk people that fucked with your comic, they're coming with you, man. They know your name. They're That's coming right. with you to the and, next and, shit. And Miller says that, and Eisner says that again and again throughout this interview. Putting your name on it, man, it changes it. Because you're right. There are some that will not go beyond Hulk. Yes. But at least the people that do go beyond, they know who I am. The concept was introduced to me by uh, by Dan Klaus, who very frankly is like, there are so few. Uh, the number of Dan Klaus fans is way smaller than the Ghost World fans or the Velvet Glove fans. All of his books have different kinds of audiences. And there are sections of those audiences that don't yeah, fuck with other books, you know. But you probably usually cartoonists are the Dan Klaus fans who grab it all. Right. Um, this is a little a little note that a little bit different than what we're talking about. But Miller makes a note about how um, they're talking about sort of people coming into the medium, different time periods, you know, from their past. And how the energy, this is Miller's quote, the energy coming in now and the numbers coming in now are just unprecedented. I find that so exciting. Yeah. Like that that's something that we observed, we talked about. Um it's so different. You know, it's almost like there's a thousand times more people making comics now than we're making them in, in 30 years ago. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous how much bigger that number is. I don't know what that translates into. You know, like when we look around and go, "Oh, book scan numbers are up or the direct market sales are up or you know, there's there's 20 movies now about from comics." You know, like all these things are up 
I don't know that you point to one thing and say, this is what caused it all. It feels like these are all parts of why comics are where they're at now in libraries, in schools, in movies, in bookstores, everywhere. Like comics feel more ubiquitous now than maybe any other point in my life. It is also that thing too, man, where you go to a SPX or some other small press show and on the way there, man, you and I, we fill up the car full of our inventory and shit like that, man. You got four boxes of stuff. I got four boxes of stuff. We go to the, we go to the joint, we sell all of our material and we come home with five boxes yes. of stuff from other people. People I've never even heard of. It's like Make suddenly it my, my new favorite cartoonist is somebody I didn't know existed four days ago. Yes. It's, it's, my, it's so different than when, when I started out as a fan. Totally. And then names come up, you know, Peter Bag we saw, James Kachalko, mm -hmm. uh, these people that uh, have a love of the medium. And then Eisner scares me by saying, ultimately, you've got to take a gamble and have something to say. It's like, shit, back to this. <laughs> well, you know, like, it's that thing, too, like, <clears throat> where we always, everybody makes, makes mention of Japanese comics and how, like, I'm looking at 10 volumes of Oishinbo comics that are Japanese food manga right there. Like, who's going to be the one to, to take, have the balls to do that? That's true. In American culture, shouts to Lucy Nisley. She did her food comics that sold really well that create a uh, incentive for somebody else to do their food comic. Like let, Brian Lee O'Malley. Let me get let me get some uh, let me get a good football comic. And I'm talking American football. Let me let me see what that is, you know? Like let me see make a fishing comic. Make, like who's gonna be the one to make the great comic that ha that can bring in these other audiences? You know, let's have a real healthy medium. It doesn't all have to be capes. Man, I like that. Because there is a lot of room yet to go. So much. I mean, just pick something. Right. Professionalism. This is the culmination of basically everything that we talked about today. Work for hire is very much like hiring someone to paint your house, says Will Eisner. There's a publisher, there's a distributor, there's a retailer, and then there's the editor. <laughs> yeah, like he's defining all these pieces, man. It's it's uh, He spells it out very clearly. Yeah. The the paint the house painter analogy is that uh, just because I hired you to paint my crib doesn't mean you own it. This is my property, and you just put a new coat of paint on it. I do think that that, by and large, is what the big two think of their talent. Man, you're taking our 80 year old properties, 60 year old properties, put a new put a new varnish on it, put it out into the universe, see what happens. But that's ours. Hey, it's worth it's worth pointing out the. Um amount of footage or, or inches that Eisner's getting when it comes to leaning into the professionalism thing. Like he's got some opinions and you know, the alternative to the work for hire, he says there's, you either must offer an idea or you must offer your talent, the yes. labor in other yeah. words. And that's your painting the house. That's the work for hire is the labor. Um, and if it's an idea, then there's some other options. Yes. And he's talking about like down in Florida, like there was some neighbor knew that he's a comic book guy, has a kid who has some talent. The kid had chops. He introduced the kid to some editors and the kid, the kid got his ass fired for, for talking smack. You know, he, he was, he was saying some, some dumb shit and they decided not to work with him. There's, there's plenty of that, man. Like this is where like your online persona comes in and there are all the kinds of double-edged swords that, that they're just, the people who are hiring you for your labor, if you, if you are a troublemaker, if you, if you're just running your mouth off, why would they fuck with you? Who, yeah. needs, who needs the headache? Yeah. I think, I think at some point Eisner lays that out too. Um, 
or maybe Miller does, but where it's like there's three things that you need, you know, to be successful, and uh, you basically need two of them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the old classic thing, man. You got to get your work on time. You got to be likable and uh, good. Yes, and and really, you just got to be two of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting talk about copyright. Yeah, and how how much copyright may not give you what you think it gives you, which right. we're learning about in some of these court cases that we're that we're reading transcripts of. Um, I'd be interested in having a lawyer who specializes in intellectual property come on and talk about these things the, because I don't know them well. They're showing up in the comments, man, whenever we do court stuff. So so if one of those guys wants to come on, we have to automatically assume that they're at least a little bit articulate if they got to stand up in a court of law and, and sell people on a position. But uh, like one of the things about copyright that, that Eisner says is like, uh, you know, tree falls in a in the in the forest of somebody hear it type conversation. Okay, yeah, so you have your copyright now, but you don't have a publisher. So you you're sitting on a dead asset basically. Uh, you got this thing. Maybe you uh, you know get some small time publisher to put the thing out, and there are a thousand of them out there. Nobody's looking to make a movie off of something that has a thousand copies out there. Nobody's looking to make toys of something like that. So congratulations on having your copyright, but it ain't going anywhere. And uh, they, they don't mention it by name, but some of like what Eisner is talking, I mean, what Frank Miller is talking about are those like weird relationships, like the vertigo relationships Yes. where they're like, yeah, you get copyright, but it's really a 50-50 stalemate. Like if something doesn't, if either party doesn't want, doesn't find an offer equitable, there's a stalemate and the, and the property doesn't move. Like that's the same as having a copyright in at no interest. Great food for thought, Ben. Highly recommended for for some for enterprising people like really getting into the game who who want to make this a, a real a real effort uh, as as a career rather than just you know elaborate hobby or whatever. Eisner t breaks down the shop stuff too, man. Like uh, Bob Kane quit Eisner Iger because I was only paying five bucks a page, but Donenfeld was given a seven to ten, and Eisner talk about like as they were like putting you know, s selling books and, 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 and shipping off packages, he was only getting about $7 per page, man. So he can't pay a guy yes. more. You know, I need to take my little piece and I need to keep the lights on in this friggin' sweatshop that we're running. I think this all the time whenever I see numbers of books sold and I go, okay, cover price is this, the distributor's paying this, the printing costs this, and you, and you can kind of div divide it up and be like, yeah, that means this guy that made this 300-page graphic novel gets a thousand dollars or something you know like you can kind of see where that money is and it often doesn't add up Sp speaking as professionals the, i mean there is a certain there is a certain threshold that if you are quite sure your book will sell under you should just self-publish it yes you, you you will you will make more money that way it might sound counterintuitive it might sound weird but because of the thin margins and and my cutoff my cutoff is 10k, dude. Like like if I don't think I'm gonna sell 10k with a publisher, then I gotta just publish the thing myself. It's not worth it to 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 split up nickels and dimes in that way. I think there are more factors involved. If you have a series of books from a publisher, it may behoove you to do this print run because it continues to sell back catalogs. It does, stuff. yeah. But the other thing is, think that we have that option now. The ability to self-publish now, and, and you know, there's some self-publishing talk in this chapter. We have so many more options than, than used to exist in self-publishing even, yep. which is pretty cool. Very, very um, true. 
Eisner says, I never subscribed to the creator's bill of rights because I believe there was no reality to it. And uh, Miller says he thinks it was an attempt to change the mode of thinking. Yes, and we and we talked to all those creators, and they also say exactly what he said. It was more about shedding some light on some stuff that uh, that are rights that are possible that you have to negotiate. That's the piece. Like I, I actually think the Creator Bill of Rights is a good document, and I would encourage every creator to look at it. Not because it means boycott your publisher now or or lawyer up now. But because it does outline like what is what what rights are available, you know, like when you go into negotiation, like foreign rights, digital rights, reprint rights, all of these things are something that should be worked out between you and whoever you're going into business with. And, and, and you know, that Creator Bill of Rights is a good starting point just to kind of look at what all is there. You know, like some of the stuff is uh, right to prompt payments that should be defined in your contract. So it's not necessarily necessarily, hey, these are all your rights but they kind of are before you sign anything so talk address them address the, them in that negotiation there are some deep things to to consider like as you as you as you build a career and as you get like the right guys and stuff i mean stuff like foreign right uh there are certain countries that have like a big native language but have like a, a big a minority of like a different kind of like language of people and uh you can get the publisher of a bigger of like say say if there's a big german population in sweden and they want to do a version like that in sweden but for the germanic people there uh you can get a german publisher to publish the book get much bigger money than they were offering there in like sweden and and pump it into the country that like those are possible and if you got the right guy like they know how to do that shit, man but that but that's something that you don't think about right you know probably not at first but now now you do yeah you know like being conscious of this stuff allows you to at least go into the negotiations with some awareness of hey don't be taken advantage of know that these things are something to uh again just come to terms with there's like very young i uh you know i i, I get a lot of um <clears throat> my my ideas from like like sports figures and, and stuff like this man like i like that uh michael uh, Jordan calls it the game of basketball all the time, so I call it the medium of comics. Uh, but uh, there was this like idea that I remember hearing a lot in the late '90s. It called called designing your life. I'm designing my life, and and Miller has a part right here. It's a part of how you create your life. And anybody who comes in thinking the artist should be miserable or poor is thinking like a loser, not like an artist. I love it. Love and it. I love whenever we both have the same thing highlighted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it just resonates, dude. And it's the of stuff it's, it's the stuff that connects you and I. And, like, when we go to these conventions, right, and we are, like, always, like, you know, we spend a lot of time together, Jim. Maybe we go off in our own directions, go hang out with some other people, and then uh, we'll debrief later. And why do we always come back to each other clutching and s shaking? <laughs> it's because you start to hang out with some people who might be thinking like losers. Man, it's it, it's interesting. I like the Michael Jordan thing too. I've been listening to a podcast of uh, like basketball history lately, and Jordan's on there, and they're talking about what they got from the previous generations and what they pass on. And in Jordan's words, it is for the game of basketball is why you would help somebody, why you would advise a younger player or something like that. And I feel like comics could have more of that. You know, like it's it's kind of awesome that that a book like this exists because you get two guys who have. I don't know, a hundred years of comics making between them really talking about that. 
You know, like this is the kind of conversations we're not going to form a union. That's not going to happen. Right. But we could talk about creators' rights and, and, you know, taking that into your negotiation with your contract. Artists are afraid to offend the person who's buying from them, fearing that he might not buy their work because of it. And there you go, man. Why would we not have a union? That, like, that's, that's, a good, that's a good statement right there. And, and, and you do see it, man. Jesus, the people that I talked to didn't, working for the big two who didn't even think that they were allowed to talk to the artist on the thing. How divorced is that from like Alan Moore, who's like, I want to know everything you want to draw and would be excited to draw, and I will cater scripts around that. Yeah. Um, Eisner makes a comment about how it's a, a wonderful way to get into a business is to get in at the ground floor when it's in trouble. I always thought like, uh, you know, like whenever I started doing shows in 2000, it felt that way. Like this is a low point. If you can, if you can come out of this, it's only going to get bigger. And then you will have always been there because you were there when the fewest readers and the fewest uh, other cartoonists by the dip. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think I think we've said that before in this interview. You know, in this uh, in previous installments. Yeah, man. There's also some talk about like you know be a copywriter like work, like get get some lowly job like in the biz and then it makes it easier to to to, to sell your work. Later. You know what's hilarious? We looked at uh, the Charlton Guide to Making Comics. They say the same thing. It might be from that. <laughs> we read a lot of stuff in a week. <laughs> people always say that, though. Like, I've heard people in other industries say that, you know. Uh, uh, there's a podcaster who talks about, like, get a job driving the van at the radio station. It's much easier to work your way <laughs> to a microphone if you're there every day. Yeah. This is, you know, this is that, that conversation. How much can an editor of a Batman book or a Spider-Man book do? Um, every couple of years, man, there's there's, like people bitching and complaining about their like IDW page rate or something and think that they should get more and it's like they'll just get anybody to do like if complain all you want but they'll just send you packing and, and get another person to draw that comic for a hundred bucks a page uh you didn't invent whatever that property is like what do you bring to the table it's true and and you know, Your you expertise? don't have to be there either. Yeah. Like, like, if you're not happy with it, move on. Uh, going back to kayfabe, uh, Cody Rhodes is the guy. Like, he asked Marvel to let him out of his contract, whatever, five years ago or something. Basically rebuilt himself and then shows up at WrestleMania in a top spot. You know, like, he left there when they thought he had a very low ceiling. Changed what he was bringing and uh, comes back in a different spot. That's 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 what you do. I feel like that's the grand design weight, by the way, man, because I think we might have talked about it in, in, a, in a previous one, but it's like the the set of car cartooning sort of acumen that we bring doesn't mirror any other kinds of comics making like at a Marvel. But we built our names up in this other space that gives you like more buy buying power, more uh, more buying temperature, like with the company, they they could see how they could make more money because of the cartoons cafe platform, have the comics that, that we put out. Go go back to chapter twenty one or twenty two where they're talking about what is success. Those companies want to sell books. Yes. Yes, that's their function. They're the the kind of disseminators and that's that's their purpose. That's the thing that that, that uh that Eisner stresses a whole lot throughout the, the uh, conversation. There it is. Yes. The climb from the mailroom to writing comics is well-worn. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's so true. Not limited to the comics industry by any stretch. Right. Um, I highlighted a Miller statement at the bottom there. The standard comic book is gone. 
it's it's interesting because he he makes an observation about how publishers print too many titles because the comics make such little money that's how they make it profitable that's really interesting you know in the past you might have done 500,000 copies of the hulk right by the late 90s you were doing 100,000 so if you wanted to get that money you didn't have to do five other titles because the profit margin's not as great you might have had to do 10 other titles right. to get back to that original first profit percentage yeah and uh i i haven't seen other people comment on that but it's pretty informative i think you know where it's like the comics industry may be making a little bit more money but each individual title is making way less because there are so many more titles yeah that that's a, that's a different form of hot shotting it is yeah it is you know because it looks good to the stockholders they're like oh yeah good numbers are up best comics are made when the writer and the artist are in one body that's true true statement yeah, I agree with that. You can certainly find exceptions. You know, yeah. there are good good comics. Watchmen, you know, for, for probably our audience would be a good example. But uh, I do think that you can just do more if, you know, the right hand knows what the left hand's doing. Yeah. Another part of the professionalism conversation are several anecdotes that, uh, that Eisner lays out from his time at uh, SVA. I'm not going to get into all of them because they're kind of like, uh, just will take 10 minutes to for him to squeeze them out. But certainly worth reading. And... I'll, one of those things that com comes to mind a lot when I think of the 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 jobs that one takes, man. Like I do think that a lot of people would uh, compromise their personal values a lot to to get like a good payout for you know an illustration or something. Doing business implies mutual respect, and that that is that is like a maxim to me, man. Uh, you got to be treated with with respect. You got to you got to grab your respect if you if you're not paid promptly and on time like you know you make this agreement if you're not paid like on time like that's a little that's a strike you know there's there's like an unreliability there and uh this gets back into that thing about like not wanting to offend the people who are buying your work where because people will put up with that kind of stuff now now you just it, it makes it makes our work a little tougher going to the publisher and it's like hey where's my thing where's my thing because they're just not used to it man rest in peace tom spurgeon but like one of the things i appreciated from him uh one of the last times we talked was uh, he came up to me he's like ed you know what man you you're starting you're getting a reputation for being a good businessman in comics and i really think that all that he means is that i actually like ask for things and you know expect to be treated properly i bet there's a third piece and it's the delivering because like you're selling books right and you know when whenever you talk about splitting up at the convention and, and, and trying to get information and talking shop with people that's not a topic that people a lot of people look at that as like it's just out of my hands right you know they have a pr team or they have a publicist or whatever like they sell the books and it's like i don't know i just don't hear very many conversations about it and if you think about professional and business at some point you don't get hired if the books don't sell right you know like that's a key component to success in business it is it is in a, this business yeah it is a cool thing about comics that, the, that this is like the last medium to give you a, a couple shots like if you do good work man a publisher's gonna publish it give you that shot take a failure take a flyer but if you don't start delivering at a certain point, they're just doing it for like the good of the culture, and I don't know that that's going to last forever. 
I like this chapter a lot. I like the way they talk about it as, uh, you know, it feels like a like a business partnership. Yeah. And I like that idea because it's really easy to, to be one-sided. Look, we're obviously slanted towards creators. Of course we are. That's that's who we are. But you do want to be in business with somebody that, that treats you right and that you treat respectfully and, 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 you know, back and forth. So I don't hear that conversation much. Right. I'm glad to hear it here. Yeah. Yeah, it, the conversation, it's always war with yeah. these people. It's always war. It's always me versus them. And it's like, this is a person you're in business with. This is the person you spent X amount of time of your life making a book and you don't, and and your relationship is contentious like that. But you know, it's really not like when they're in touch with one another, they're venting and blowing off steam to you. But that's a red flag to me. I Any agree. Other? You know, it, it made me think a lot about this Hulk project in terms of like, you know, do you have expectations going in? You you negotiate your contract, you negotiate the creative, you know, all these things. But I also want something on the way out. Yeah. Like I want to leave there thinking I delivered exactly what I told them I would. They're happy with that. They did what they paid me promptly. They gave me room to do what I wanted to do. You know, all the stuff that they said they were going to do. I don't know if I ever work with them again or not, but I want it to be that we'd both be happy to because we both did what we said we were going to do. Yes. I like thinking about it that way as opposed to I'm just by myself. They're the enemy. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right. I like that part. I, I I would like to have more of those conversations or hear more of those conversations. Like how do we work together between the talent and the business? Lots of good conversations uh, coming from uh, this book, Jimmy. And our next episode is going to wrap up uh, this this conversation between two sort of legends in, in the field. And we're gonna start off with the importance of uh, editors, man. Uh, Frank Miller kept Bob Shrek and Diana Schutz real close throughout uh, most of his career. When you find a good editor, you hold on to them uh, for, 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 for all they're worth. I uh, can't wait to get into that portion. I'm looking forward to that. You good to go, Jimmy? I am. Okay, Fabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the bell, we'll notify you when new vids are available. What is out there, Jim? Hulk Grand Design Monster, number one in comic shops everywhere while supplies last. Hulk Grand Design Madness, number one, coming to shops at the end of April. So if you haven't reserved that already, let them know. Usually, uh, you know, subsequent issues aren't printed as heavily as the first. So you want to make sure you pick that up. The 60-year history of the Hulk told in two oversized issues. And uh, join me on patreon.com slash jimrug. Red Room Trigger Warnings, Issue 1 and 2 are on the stands as we speak, murder on the dark web for fun and profit, and when we speak about being businessmen and we speak about the business of comics, uh, there are comic shops who aren't good businessmen or, or uh, good at the business of comics. This comic, uh, Red Room, banned seven comic shops, man, and counting, but the cool thing is that the better comic shops, when they heard tell of that, tripled their orders and started opening up their online business to sell more copies of Red Room. Uh, it's going to be coming out on a monthly basis, and you can uh, read these comics before they hit paper at my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor. Three bucks for the archive there, and uh, I am putting out the, the strips before they, they hit paper. You can hit up my link tree in the description below this video for uh, all, of, all of those links. What else do we have out there, Jimmy? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. That's another great way to support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Jimmy, give them those marching orders and we'll be on our way. Make more comics.